Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It is, oh, it is a pleasure to be here. It's good to be here. I pray this morning that as I speak to you, you will understand some of the things that I've learned going through this topic. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that, Lord, you minister to us. I thank you, Father, for our brains, for our intellect, oh God. I put our intellect before you this morning, Father, and I say, Lord, let us not respond, Lord, from our intellect, Lord, but from the place where your Holy Spirit is ministering to us. Let us understand, Father, who you are and what you mean to do in our lives. Father, I pray that each and every person, Father, will come away, Lord, with something valuable, something useful, something that, Lord, that will be helpful personally and helpful in ministry, oh God. Father, thank you for this word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All righty, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to talk to you this morning about offense. And offense from the theme of enemies of our heart. So we have many enemies of our heart, offense being one of them. And so my theme or my title scripture my this morning comes from Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. The English Standard Version says, Do nothing from selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I remember reading that scripture as a young Christian and being totally confused about it, esteeming others above ourselves. So when it comes to offense, right, is one of the enemies of our heart that prevents us from living out the scripture and putting other, other people's interests above our own or just not considering other people. We act and we think and we live and we behave from the point of our experience, our reference, our perspective. And so what offense does as an enemy of our hearts, right? And so an enemy is a thing that weakens something else. It's an adversary. And so I read an article about what it is to have an enemy, how you deal with an enemy, you know, what kind of, what kind of, what kind of strategy, strategies you use when you have an enemy. And if you have, if you're going into battle and you have an enemy, right, you need to understand who your enemy is, what your enemy's goal is. And then you need to understand how you deal with that enemy, how you defeat your enemy. So this guy, Peter Randall says, to lose, in one of the articles that I read, he says, to lose sight of the enemy, both literally and figuratively, can be fatal. And I know that that's not what we're going for here. What we're going for in kingdom living is, is, is life. God promised us life and life more abundantly. So we're not we're not trying to die in the process of battling our enemy. 
It says, many times people fail to consider, to recognize their enemy, to consider their enemy to, uh, in, in, in defense and strategy, defense strategy and planning. And so what happens? Their strategies are ineffective. They lose. Okay. So this enemy that we're fighting against and that's fighting against us is an adversary and that adversary wants to gain victory over us. So this offense, what it is, is it's a feeling. It's an emotional response. It's annoyance. It's resentment. It's, you know, it which leads to other things, but it's an emotional response resulting in from a slight or a dig uh, or or an indignity that was um let's use the word committed that was committed against us by somebody else now one of the things i've learned about these enemies is that as we would say in jamaica they travel in pack well they're a posse they travel in packs you know where you find one you find their whole entourage, you find that you find a posse. In in the base of Satan, John Bevere says, the, offend, the offended person produces much fruit, such as hurt, anger, outrage, jealousy, resentment, strife, bitterness, hatred, and envy. Now, as we talk about offense, one of the things that I want us to bear in mind offense is a choice offense is a choice again it's a choice in luke 17 1 jesus tells us it is impossible that no offenses should come so how is it that we choose to be offended offended when offenses come it's well here we have to be intentional and deliberate in our response because there are going to be many opportunities to be offended. People will deliberately and intentionally offend us. We're not even talking about those that offend us unintentionally and, on, and in passing. We're actually going to have people who set out to offend us. I was thinking about being offended. And one of the things I realize personally is when it comes to being offended or, well, yes, when it comes to being offended, we think of ourselves as harmless, good, benevolent. If we offend or if we do something that is offensive, right, we think, well, I mean no harm. I didn't do it on purpose. You know, I'm sorry. People should consider my personality consider our relationship people should you know people should look at me um, the way I see myself which is harmless and kind but when somebody else does the thing that we find offensive then we think of them as harsh as unkind as uncaring as selfish and I, I found that to be interesting so oftentimes there is a disconnect between how we see ourselves and how we perceive people who do the same, who act the way we act, right? So 
when that happens, we want, we want to say, oh, it was a mistake. But then when it's done to us, we want to say, oh, no, 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 no. Let's throw the book at them. Whatever the law says, whatever, whatever the maximum penalty, if the church says this, expel them, we expel them. If the law says this, send them to prison for 10 years, we want them to go, not a year, not two years, we want them to go for the full 10 years, right? And so that get, that got me looking again at the scripture, thinking about how Christians respond to offense. To be honest, it's not really very, it's not, we really don't have the awareness and it's not that different many times. So as Christians, what we do sometimes is we take offense at God and we take offense at each other. We take offense at God because, well, he didn't do what we want. He didn't he didn't show up when we wanted him to show up. He didn't, you know, he didn't do it when we wanted it, how we wanted it, at the time we wanted it. And so we get very upset. We we walk away. I mean, we lose our salvation. We lose our relationship with him. We lose our salvation. And this well, that's, that is no good. When we offend each other, we realize that we are, we are offended because we care about somebody. The people that we don't care about, the bar is higher for them. We don't care about them, so it's harder for them to offend us, right? But the people that we're in relationship, the people with the people that we love and that we're in relationship with, those are the people that cause the greatest offense in our lives. Those are the people that leave us angry, bitter, unforgiving, jealous, leaving you know, we 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 malice them and they enrage us, and that leaves us open to what the Bible calls the root of bitterness. In fact, history records that some of the fiercest battles have been between the closest relationships, siblings, married couples, some of the ugliest battles happen in divorce court, according to, according to writers. When it comes to God and our being offended or choosing to be offended by him. We become offended because of our view of him, because of how we see him, how we perceive him. And many times, all the time, in fact, that has to do with our relation, how our relationships with others impact us. So for people in authority in our lives, if we had a father that was negligent we consider that god is negligent sometimes if you know he doesn't show up if he doesn't fit in our box because we want him to fit in our box we want him you know that's not what we say but in our actions we want him to be that genie so we rub the we rub the little lamp and he grants us our three wishes and when he doesn't do that then you know then we go off and we say oh well I don't know. I how could he? I did everything right. I've done this for the kingdom, that for the kingdom. I am this and I'm that and I'm that. And somehow 
just go off on the wrong track. And ultimately, if we keep going, end up outside of his will and even outside of a relationship with him. Being offended or choosing to be offended by God makes it impossible for us to believe that he will do what he says he will do and that he is who he say he is. The other thing it does it is it reveals our heart towards him. It reveals our relationship with him. It reveals that our relationship with him is shaky. That is not built on firm foundation because that offense suggests in, in being offended by God, we're suggesting or saying sometimes, hopefully we're not saying that a lot, but we're saying that he failed us, that he owed us and he didn't deliver. He failed us, you know, instead of looking at it from the proper perspective, which is God loves us. God is for us. God is, you know, we know that he has been there in the past and he will be there in the, in the future. He will be there in the present because he's constant. Because we know that he has revealed through his Holy Spirit, his character, his nature. He has revealed to us who he is. Who he is and what and what he's done for us. And so then we, we become unable to give him the to see the relationship in its right perspective and to instead of expecting him to serve us and to do for us what we want we we then that's how we feel instead of saying you know lord i should lay down my life for you i should because that is the proper response to you laying down your life for me now, according to this book I read, The Bait of Satan, John Bevere says, very interestingly, people who are offended fall into two categories. One, those people who've been treated unjustly. And two, those people who believe that they have been treated unjustly. And that was quite revealing. I learned, I learned so many lessons from the examples, the examples he gave. So one of the examples that he gave was Joseph. So let us take a moment. Well, actually, let's take a few minutes, quite a few. And we look at the life of Joseph. And this is the whole, the whole story, the whole life of, well, the part of the life of Joseph that we're looking at starts at Genesis 37, chapter 37. And we go all the way to chapter 48. And I suggest very strongly that we read it in the context of this topic, looking at it in, from the point of view of offense. So now Joseph had many brothers. He was the 11th child, I believe, of his father. His father loved him. In fact, his father loved him more than he loved his other children. So... Naturally, sibling, sibling rivalry being what it is, those other children weren't happy with him. They didn't like him. And everything he did added to that dislike. He had this dream. He told them about it. 
They didn't like him. He had another dream that he told them about. Made it even worse. So one day, his father sent him to go see these, these, these boys. And they decided, once and for all, they got their opportunity. They were going to get rid of him. And that was the beginning of his, I don't know, let's call it his woes. I don't think, I don't think he thought being ridiculed and, and disliked by his brothers was fun. But the real fun was about to begin. So these, 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 these men, these boys, these brothers had a conversation. What are we going to do with this, with this, this, this thorn in our flesh, as it were? What are we really going to do with him? They debated killing him. Somebody said, no, let's put him in the pit. Somebody said, eh, let's sell him. Killing him won't benefit us. But we want to get rid of him. So they decided to sell him. He ends up in Egypt, right? A slave in Egypt. And what I find interesting about the scriptures at different points, so from being in, in Potiphar's house to being in jail, to being in, in Pharaoh's employ. The scripture says, and he found favor with God. He prospered. He succeeded in what he did. He found favor with God. And that was interesting. He, so think about it. He's in jail. He's in. He's a slave. He's away from his family. He's alone. He's alone in this whole world. But he found favor with God. So now comes even more anguish on Joseph. Potiphar's wife tells a line, Joseph, he ends up in prison, right? He was a slave. He was already a slave. Now he's a prisoner. And this is not, this is not an American jail where you get light and food and, you know, nobody had any value for you in jail. People threw you there to forget about you for you to die. He already had, he already had little, Little that was familiar to him. Little that, you know, it was a different country, different language, different people, different culture. These people did not mix with each other. I was reading the scripture and it said that when when his brothers came to Egypt, you know, um, and said that they were they were shepherds, that the Egyptians and they, they had no respect for that. They had no value for that. They they didn't mix with them. The Hebrews and the and, and the Egyptians had no relationship. They, they weren't friendly towards each other. But here he was, situation getting worse. He finally, I think, what I consider when I think about the story, he finally gets a glimmer of hope in this prison where he meets Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker. Well, in the cupbearer, he found the glimmer of hope when he interprets his dream and you know he says remember me when you get restored well years pass and he's still there what another another letdown this man has gone and forgotten about him until of course two years later when the pharaoh has the dream and the pharaoh was so disturbed by the dream none of his magicians nobody could nobody could interpret the, the dream and so the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And of course, he interprets the dream. He's the only one that does. He gets his job. Now he's back. He's no, he's back on he's back on the other side of on the side of life he knew as a slave. But think about his life up to this point. 
I never thought about it. And one of the things I learned from this commentary of, of his life is as a slave in Egypt, he lost everything. In fact, it said his he would have been better off dead. He would have been better off dead than a slave in Egypt. Because as a slave in Egypt, if he got married, his wife would have been a slave. If he had children, his children would have been born into slavery. He lost his name. He lost his identity. He lost his inheritance. He was from a wealthy family, a prominent family. I mean, God had made all these promises to, to his grandfather and great-grandfather about them being a mighty nation. I'm sure he heard. Everybody passes down the family legacy. Not so much the family secret, but everybody passes down the family legacy. So everybody, everybody, I'm sure, knew that God had promised that, you know, great thing. They were going to become a great nation. Well, how was he going to become a great nation when he was not even who he was born as anymore? And so he had plenty of time to think about all of that in Egypt. And so now he comes and Pharaoh hires him and Pharaoh says, well, who is going to be in charge of uh, managing this grain? Man, you know, because we're going to have a famine. We're going to have we're going to have so much grain. Uh, somebody needs to do the job. And eventually, lo and behold, Joseph gets the job. Joseph is, is instituted as the manager of the grain, the, the seven years of plenty to prepare for the seven years of lean. And again, the scripture says he has favor. He had favor there. All right. So then the famine comes and everybody's looking to Egypt because now Egypt is, is, I'm going to assume that that's the only place there was food anywhere around. So everybody's coming to Egypt to buy food. And so lo and behold, who shows up but these brothers? Never, never thought. They didn't know that they were ever going to see him again. He knew who they were. They didn't know he, who he was. Anyway, series of events happened back and forth. And he finally said, you know what? All this, all these shenanigans, sending for the brother, asking about the father. I am your brother. I am your brother that you sold into slavery. In Genesis 45, verses 5, 7, and 8. It reads in verse five, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. This is the King James Version. For God did send me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God, and he had made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, does that sound like an offended person? Is that the first thing that you would say towards a person that had, or people that had murderous intentions towards you? murderous intentions they had your life in their hand and they really contemplated ending it no i mean to me that's amazing because my first response would be "Ooh, i'm gonna get all of you all revenge would be high on the list 
And not not only does he not want revenge, I mean, his response to them is the complete opposite of somebody who's offended. He's concerned about their life. How am I going to be concerned about your life when you said, I'm going to kill you? He said, and God sent me before you to preserve your life. He sent me before you to preserve life, to preserve your life. The last thing I'd be concerned about is their life. And while... I might consider myself good, and in my goodness, I might say, eh, I don't want you to die. I don't wish you any evil. I certainly wouldn't be, be looking, be talking prosperity over you. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be concerned about your life. The other thing that was remarkable to me about the scripture is he said, God sent me. God sent me. God sent me before you. So even though I don't know. I, I didn't see God's hand in that. Personally, in the natural, I didn't see God's hand in that. How is it being sold into slavery, losing everything that's familiar, losing your identity? How is it that you're going to say that came from God? He said, but God sent me before you. God was there. And so it got me thinking about his life and about the purpose of his suffering. And I wondered, what is the purpose of his suffering? Well, we get into that later, but one of it, of course, one, one reason is that in that situation, in that despair, that despondency, that disaster, that everything that it was, that turmoil, that tumult, that God had a purpose for his life and God's purpose for his life did not change even through the changing circumstances of his life. God told him, you know, or in, 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 in his dream, he said, I saw, I saw us in a field or I saw my sheep rising up and your sheaves, you know, bowing down before me, which of course was what made them mad and decided to kill him anyway. And we realized in hindsight, what well, he didn't know, he didn't have hindsight, it was his life. We realized in hindsight that that dream that he got before any of that happened, that dream was still the plan for his life. That God still meant and still purposed the same things for his life through that situation. Now, imagine if he'd been offended and he'd stayed offended not just at his brothers, but imagine if he was offended at God, if he'd taken offense. Because he said, listen, he, he knew God. He said, God sent me before you. If God sent me before you, then he could have said, God, why? Why? Why, why, did, you, why did you allow all this to happen? You didn't sell me into slavery, but you watched it happen. You know, why, why did I have to suffer all of that? Why did I have to go through all of that? I, you know, life is not fair, woe is me, and so on. And he would, we would not be reading the story. He would have missed, I mean, the plan and purpose for his life would not have come, would not have come to pass. In fact, the book says, John Bevere says, if he was plotting revenge, God would have left him there to rot in that Egyptian prison. And if he intended them harm if he had if he had been plotting to kill them 
and he was successful in killing them. He would have killed 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel, including the tribe of Judah, that Jesus ultimately came from or was born into. So we see that even though he was, he had reason to be offended, the, his brothers were offensive. He chose not to be offended. I want to ask, I'm going to say, I don't know that in his position, I could have made that choice. I don't know that I could have. I want to know how many, how, who do, how many people do you think would have been able to make that choice in that situation? I mean, not even, not the tiniest whisper of a grudge, not the anything. The scripture said that when he revealed himself to his brothers, he wept. He wept openly, the house of Pharaoh all heard they heard him he couldn't contain himself it was not weeping it was not weeping oh i got you i'm going to you know i have you where i want you and i'm going to do what i want to do it was a weeping i mean it was reconciliation it was joyful it was you know he was genuinely excited that he saw his family again i don't know and I don't think those boys were very repentant at all because then they're like, well, our father died and now you're going to want to, to get us back. You know, so even, even after all of that, I think they were, as in Jamaica, we would say, I think not necessarily all, I'm sure it's not a Jamaican expression necessarily, but in Jamaica, we say sleep with one eye open. Even after that, even after he told them that God sent him ahead of them i think they were still sleeping with one eye open because they know what they've done <laughs> they're like uh there's no way there's no way they didn't believe that he was he could forgive all of that even even after all that time and so there 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 i think is an example of and well, a mighty, mighty, mighty big example, big shoes to fill. Again, I don't know if I had those choices to make, if I would have made those choices. I don't know how many of us would make those choices, even though we know we have his shoulders to stand, to stand on. We see his example. We see how it turned out. I don't know that I don't know that I could make that and you know without 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 his shoulders to stand on if I were if I were the guinea pig if I were Joseph I don't know how I would I don't know how I would have I, I would have gone about it I don't know if I would have said no no but throughout all of that God used that situation he used that time to shape Joseph into the leader he wanted him to become. He was refining him. He prepared him for that time when he would be face to face with those brothers again. And he proved when he came face to face with them without the shadow of a doubt that he did not, he harbored no offense. He harbored no, you know, he harbored no ill will towards them. The scriptures remind us that Joseph, that Jesus, I'm sorry, learned obedience through suffering. Joseph also learned obedience through that suffering. 
in Hebrews 5, and, and that, that comes from Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Again, that was that time of suffering was that and despair and disillusionment was God was God ordained. That was God preparing him to ultimately walk in the purpose he was created for. Another another thing offense can do or does is it causes we when we offend others or when we're offended when we're offended we cause others to stumble in their walk with God as leaders in our church communities as people in community we ought to be careful of how we speak about others even when we tell the truth so it's not gossip it actually happened it was my experience and I'm sharing it with you and we think, I think, certainly before this experience, before this, I thought that was certainly okay. Let me read something to you from the book, The Bait of Satan. This is from page 55. I found it very, very interesting. It says, it's, 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 a little, it's going to be a few minutes because I was in a church for several years. The pastor was, was one of the best preachers in America. When I first attended that church, I would sit with my mouth open in awe of the biblical teaching that came from his mouth. As time passed, because of my position serving the pastor, I was close enough to see his flaws. I questioned some of his ministry decisions. I became critical and judgmental, and offense set in. He preached, and I sensed no inspiration or anointing. His preaching no longer ministered to me. Another couple who were our friends and also on, the, on staff seemed to be discerning the same thing. God sent them out from the church and they started their own ministry. They asked us to go with them. They knew how we were struggling. They encouraged us to get on with the call on our lives. They would tell us all the things this pastor, his wife, and the leadership were doing wrong. We would commiserate together, feeling hopeless and trapped. I think you see where this is going. <laughs> they, they seem sincerely concerned for our welfare, but the discussion only fueled our fire and discontent and offense. As Proverbs 26, 20 illustrates, where there's no wood, the fire goes out, and when there's no tail bearer, strife ceases. What they were saying to us may have been correct information, but it was wrong in the eyes of God because it was adding wood to the fire of offense. It was adding wood to the fire of offense in them as well as in us. We know you're a man of God, they said to me. That's why you're having problems. That's why you're having the problems you're having in this place. It sounded good. My wife and I said to each other, that's it. We're in a bad situation. We need to get out. This pastor and his wife love us. They will pastor us. The people in their church will receive us and the ministry God has given us. We left our home church and began attending this couple's church, but only for a few short months. Even though we thought we had run from our problems, we noticed that there was still, there was still a struggle for us. Our spirits had no joy. We were bound to a fear of becoming what we had just left. 
It seemed everything we did was forced and unnatural. We couldn't fit into the flow of the spirit. Now, even our relationship with the new pastor and his wife was strained. Finally, I knew we should return to our home church. When we did, we knew that once, at once that we were back in the will of God, even though it appeared that we would be more accepted and loved somewhere else. Or sorry, elsewhere. Then God shot me. John, I never told you to leave this church. You left out of offense. This was not the fault of the pastor and his wife, but ours. They understood our frustrations and were trying to help resolve the same issues in their own hearts. When you're out of the will of God, you will not be a blessing or a help to any church. When you're out of the will of God, even the good relationships will be strained. We had been out of the will of God. Offended people react to the situation and do things that appear right, even though they're not inspired by God. We're not called to react, but to act. If we're obedient to God and have sought him and he's not speaking, then, then do you know what the answer is? He's probably saying, stay right where we are. Stay right where you are. Don't change a thing. Often we feel pressure. We look for a word from God to bring us relief. But God puts us in these very uncomfortable crucibles of nature. To, I'm sorry. But God puts us in these very uncomfortable crucibles to mature, refine, and strengthen us, not to destroy us. Within one month, I had the opportunity to meet with the pastor of my original church. I repented of being critical and rebellious. He graciously forgave me. Our relationship was strengthened and joy returned to my heart. I immediately started to receive the pastor's ministry from the pulpit again, and I remained in that church for years. I see a theme. I hope we're seeing a theme here. As I said earlier, when we when we speak about or share our offense amongst others and we are a small community we're a group we understand we know how that works when i tell you what happened to me and the other person then you start thinking oh well that you you, you start forming conclusions about that other person what what i have done in sharing my experience with you is adding wood to the fire it says proverbs 26 20 says where there is no wood, the fire goes out. Isn't that a fire we need to put out? Where there's no wood, the fire goes out. And where there's no tail bearer, strife ceases. So if they didn't keep commiserating with one another, he wouldn't have had to get, he wouldn't have gotten to the point where he would have to go back to church, apologize to his pastor and repent of leaving in the first place because he was offended. So the next time we share, and I won't tell any lies, I'm a share of very many things. And that made me consider about what I share and how I share and how in sharing, it never crossed my mind what I'm doing, what, what I'm doing to the person I'm sharing with. And again, back to our theme scriptures, it says that we should consider others' interests. If we're interested in our community, if we're interested in others, if we're interested in their spiritual growth and their relationship with God, 
we would be mindful of the things that we share with them. Because again, even though we're sharing a personal experience, there is no, there, there is no, no, uh, well, there's no untruth to it. Everything that we say is true. It's not necessarily good. It can be very, very bad. That could be detrimental to somebody's, somebody's walk with God. It brings another scripture to mind, another one in Proverbs. It says, a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city and contentions are like the bars of a castle. So those feelings of resentment that we stir up in other people by saying things that we don't think about cause them to then be offended and walk in that offense. And here it says, it well, here I say it becomes more difficult to maintain and to restore relationships with each other. So a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city and contentions are like the bars of a castle. John Bevere says, offended people build walls around themselves and walls eventually lead to strongholds. And remember, we we're talking about our enemy. A stronghold for the enemy is an advantage that brings the enemy closer to victory. What does victory look like for the enemy? It looks like a failed relationship with God on our part, a relationship where we don't trust him, a relationship where he's ultimately gunning for our death. It becomes fatal if the enemy wins. For us, it becomes fatal. So a victory to the enemy is death to us. It's death to us. And it's definitely, if it's not death to us, it's regression, it's loss of ground. Because what happens when you have a stronghold? It's a setback. Is remedial work. We're going to have to go back and repent and be delivered and make restitution and make it right and restore a relationship with everybody. The one we told and the one we told about. So we get, my next point is that God tests his servants with obedience. He deliberately puts us in situations where the law is on our side. And I have to go back to my original example with this one. This, this, this personal example is not good enough, I don't think. So when Saul was chasing David, right? David had every reason to kill him. I mean, it was kill or be killed. Because Saul would stop at nothing. He killed, he murdered innocent people. I believe it was... It was 80-something. Correct me if I'm wrong. It was 85, 83. 80. Anyway, he killed 80-something innocent priests in pursuit of David because they'd helped David. And David had the opportunity a couple of times to press his advantage. To be, I mean, he caught him. God put everybody to sleep. He walked up to him and he could have killed him. But here was God saying, testing David saying, would you establish your kingdom on my timeline or on your timeline? You, you want to be obedient and wait until I restore you or are you going to take matters in your hand and do it now that you have the advantage? David had an advisor saying to him, listen, just give me the word. I will kill this man for you because he's, he's out to get you. 
the law was on his side. If he killed Saul, he wouldn't have gotten in any trouble because Saul was actively pursuing him. This was self-defense. And yet, David kept repeating. He said, why would anybody want to raise their hand against God's anointed? David understood that Saul was God's anointed. He was appointed king for the time God allowed him to be king. And he, David, did not see himself, rightfully so, as being in a position to disturb or interrupt or change that fact in any way. He was willing, rightly so again, to wait on God for his timing to come through. Now, when we are correct, when we are right, and we have the advantage, and it is okay, how do we behave? Do we wait and let God be, God be our... Do we wait and allow God's timing to come through? Do we wait and allow God's will to be done? Or do we say, uh, do we become impatient and say, well, I can get it done now. I can short circuit or shortcut. I can speed this process along and I can get to the end because after all, it's my right. It's my right to have this thing, do this thing. And it's my promise. God said, this is going to be mine. What is, what, what is our motive? When we decide that we are right and we're acting in self-defense, what is our motive? So yes, we can, David could have killed Saul. What would have been his motive? Would it have been self-defense or would it have been revenge? Mm. So what is our motive when we are right and we expose whatever situation we're in? Somebody told a lie on us. And we know for sure that they told a lie on us and we have all the evidence and all the proof. What is our motive? To exonerate ourselves, to clear or to restore our good name? Or is it to get revenge and to get them out because they're a threat to us, because they, you know, because they offended us? What is our motive when we are right? And God does put us in positions, as I say, where we are right. And we can choose to expose, we can choose to, we can choose to assert our right in the natural. Well, if our motive is revenge, guess what? We we just caused offense. We just failed that test and we just caused offense. Because even though we were wronged. We also, no, we lost our upper hand. We lost, I mean, that justice that we were going to get, that vindication that we were going to get, that restoration that we were going to get from God. We just lost it because we took matters in our own hand. We just walked out of God's perfect will. So it is amongst ourselves in our communities when we, act and we tell ourselves many times well i'm just doing well if anybody else were in the same position well no no not at all 
Well, we should consider carefully that God is sovereign, that God knows what he's doing, that his promises are true. His promises are yes and amen. If he said he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And we're exhorted to wait, to wait upon the Lord. Wait, be of good cheer. Wait patiently. Wait and be obedient. It is only when we do so that we, we that we walk in his perfect will that we fulfill promise and purpose in our lives because disobedience never delivers the satisfaction it promises ever i know i've been disobedient a few times it never turns out that that satisfaction you get from the one upmanship or whatever it is you do Sometimes it's not even, I was going to say it's fleeting. Sometimes it's not even fleeting. It's not there. It just doesn't happen. We, whatever we're looking for that we thought we were going to get, it wasn't there. No, but how about when we are in positions of authority and there are subordinates, there are people under us, pastors and church members? How about when pastors decide? They don't want to offend their members. And so they won't correct or they won't, they, they, they won't lead in the way God wants them to lead. Well, what that does is that leads to a lukewarm body, a body that's out of the favor that cannot see or experience the promises and the power of God. And we should be mindful, instead of hurting people's feelings, should be mindful of shepherding the flock that we have been given. John Bevere says, stay in your authority or someone else will take it from you and use it against you. I like the way he said that. So if we, if we don't stand in the authority given to us by God as leaders, for those of us who are leaders, then that authority will be taken from us and be given to someone else. And what happens to the body if, or if the leader's authority is taken? There's, there is no leadership. There is no purpose being accomplished. There is no glory going to God. It benefits no one. It reminds me of the scripture the scripture says that first Corinthians, I think, that we're all one, we're all one, we're all members of one body. And if the body has many parts, and if one part of the body is suffering or is sick, the whole body is sick. So when our leadership, when when the when leaders prioritize the one or the few over the many, it leads to a sick body. A body where our purpose is not, it doesn't come to being, doesn't come to fruition. Where we're not the effective ministers that we should be. We're not the effective, we're not the hands and feet that we should be. We're not walking in the authority that we're given. We can't, I mean, we're not productive at that point. We might as well, as, as, as somebody said to me once, if this happens, we might as well close up the shop and go home. At that point, we might, we're just pretending we have a form of godliness. 
we're just pretending to you know to 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 operate but we don't have that we don't have that power we're not going to achieve that purpose i have the how about in a situation where offense is justified is it ever justified because truthfully right we talked about joseph we talked about david we talked about being in a situation where somebody genuinely wronged us we are right but even though we're right we don't have the right to respond in kind we don't have the right to cause offense in our response well how about when somebody challenges the, the truth of the gospel well, we will offend people with our faith. And if we are if the truth of the gospel is challenged, then our defense will be offensive, right? In this case, happily, we we obey God as the scripture says, we choose to obey God rather than man. Because we must purpose in our hearts to obey the Holy Spirit no matter what the cost because it is that obedience to the Holy Spirit that will illustrate our relationship with God. It will illustrate our foundation. Remember we said that being offended by God proves that our relationship with him is rocky. It's, on, it's not built on a solid foundation. Well, when we choose to obey the Holy Spirit, no matter what, if that causes offense and we stick by our obedience to the Holy Spirit, that will prove that our foundation is built on solid rock and it will not crumble under pressure. It will also be definitive. So we have we will establish that this we purpose in our hearts and we establish that God is who He is. This is what we say we believe, and this is where we're in, in where we're at in our relationship with Him. And we won't ever have to keep doing that over and over again because we would have proven that we believe that our relationship is built on that solid rock, and we believe that God is who He says He is. You know? I've said a mouthful, I've given a mouthful, an earful, an eyeful. How we respond, ultimately, how we react or respond in situation determines our level of faith and our relationship with God. You know, if we trust him to do what we, what he tells us he's going to do, what we believe he's going to do, then our choices will always be to walk away from causing offense or stirring offense. Our choice is always going to be the decision that glorifies God. It's always going to be the path least walk. It's always going to be the path of greatest resistance because nobody's going to appreciate, nobody's going to understand, everybody's going to think we've lost our minds. Even those amongst us sometimes will think, oh, that she's a little off. She look funny, but now I'm sure. She don't just look funny. She's a little off. <laughs> but 
it is necessary. It is necessary because we are we are exhorted to esteem others above ourselves and not cause not not deliberately cause offense to each other. Thank you.